Hello, and welcome to this edition of People in Transition. I'm your host, Bob Durst. I've been hiring, firing, and mentoring executives, frontline employees, interns, and job seekers in companies around the world through a host of transitions, some difficult, but most very good. I work with people in Hong Kong, India, Australia, and across the United States. What sets them apart? A lot, but there's more they have in common. And one of those commonalities is transition is a part of life. This experience has given me a bird's eye view on a variety of trends, economies, industry disruptors, and transitions that are big and small. It also brought me into contact with the thought leaders and decision makers you need to meet. The people who can make the difference that matters to you right now. Imagine knowing exactly what to do next and how to know it's time to make your big change. The inside track you're going to access during our future episodes is better than a crystal ball. It's the exact information you need to take that next step. Whether you're a new grad applying for your first professional job, someone looking to transition your work experience into a promotion, launching your own company, or maybe even starting to plan your retirement, you're in transition, and this series is for you. We all know transition can be scary, but it doesn't have to be. And it's even fun when you have VIP access to the future you want. Are you tired of the uncertainty of being passed up? We'll share with you the tools and skills that can take your dreams to the front of the line. So if change is on your horizon, or maybe just the thought of change, you won't want to miss this discussion. It could be the exact edge you need to turn transition into an amazing opportunity. Ben Wyant, I am so excited having you with me today on People in Transition. I've been looking forward to this discussion for some time now. Bob, it's great to be here with you. Thank you for inviting me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Ben, when you were younger, what did you want to be when you grew up? A Formula One race car driver. I grew up racing go-karts with my father from the age of eight, and then I sold my go-kart to buy my first car when I was 16. And I can tell you, having watched the Formula One TV show on Netflix over the last couple of years, I really regret not pursuing that early dream. So, Ben, what were the transition moments that occurred to you to get you from that picture of yourself as a Formula One race car driver to where you're at today? I think it was a combination of getting focused on being in high school, being involved in academics at a high level, being involved in multiple sports at the varsity level, and then focusing on what was going to come after that. And it didn't leave a lot of time for the racing part of life. I had a lot of varied interests and those started early on and that has continued through the rest of my career. And I've been on a career river ever since. And Ben, for those who are listening that maybe don't know you as well as I do, why don't you describe what you're doing now? I am currently a career transition consultant, and I help professionals in job transition define, own, and confidently communicate their professional value and narrative, and then build that into all of their marketing materials and activities as they execute a successful job search. Ben, you've used the line with me before that it is really important for a person who is in transition for them to engage in strategic networking and that there is a methodology 
and a psychology to that networking. Can you explain what that means? Absolutely. Most people are familiar with what I call general networking, and that is often just a starting point for finding people to have conversations with, but it's not focused or strategic. And then the next level I call targeted networking. And this is when you come together with like-minded people. Job search groups are a great example of that, as are meetup groups or professional association meetings. But then strategic networking is when you identify individuals in the target companies that you're going after that can influence a hiring decision on your behalf now or in the future. And that means being very intentional about who you're selecting, who you're talking to, having a reason to talk to them. And then the psychology of it comes into, why should this person want to talk to you? And it's probably not going to be because you're in job search. And I think that's where we have to turn networking on its head and think about it not necessarily as networking, but as building professional relationships. And that changes the whole tenor of those conversations and changes the outcome focus and makes it more real in human activity. And so I think that is one of the, the points that makes it strategic, identifying those individuals, engaging them with a reason, and then making it about them, right? People will certainly give you time to talk about themselves before they'll give you time to talk about yourself. And so use that piece of psychology to your advantage strike up conversations that allow them to share their story or their successes and frame it that way when you're reaching out to them. Make them feel good about who they are and what they have to offer and that you're interested in them sharing it with you. I really encourage people to stay away from the phrase, I'd like to pick your brain because that's very transactional. It's very one way. It's very extractive. I know when people ask me if they can pick my brain, I'm like, I'm not a horror show. We are not going to do it this way. And so, yeah, I think it's better to ask people to share their successes and stories with you. If I'm in transition, is it too late for me to take part in that strategic networking? No. While I believe that it's important for people to make strategic networking and relationship building part of their ongoing professional practice, it's not too late once you're in job search. While it is a long game strategy in the end, it doesn't have to be a long time period for that to be able to be nurtured and then to yield results. So an example of that is you've got to find common ground with an individual. LinkedIn is a great place to be able to do that research and to reach out to people and find that element of common ground. It could be something that they've posted some content that they've published could be something that you've gleaned from reading their about section could be that you have something similar with them in terms of career trajectory could be that you share the same alma mater there's a whole number of variables that you can pull out that could become a a piece of common ground to start a a conversation around and then you reach out to the individual to have a conversation about that topic and then once you can build that level of rapport and have a human-to-human conversation then you can bridge into your job search and a follow-on conversation. So it doesn't necessarily need to take a long time, but I believe you should incorporate strategic networking into your own professional development and practice as a long-term career-proofing or future-proofing strategy for yourself. Ben, you've also told me that you need to define and own your professional self. Can you help me understand what that means? Over the years when I've worked with professionals in transition or candidates when I was a recruiter, one thing that I found was a commonality is people weren't confident about who they were. They weren't able to dig deep and probably hadn't done the introspective work to understand what their true value is. And 
ultimately, when you're having conversations with prospective employers, they want to understand your value. They want to understand how all the pieces fit together. And if you haven't thought that through in a very intentional and structured way, you're not going to be able to communicate that confidently for yourself. And they certainly aren't going to be confident in you if you're not able to communicate that in a way that uh, is satisfying to them. And how would you suggest someone go about doing that introspection? Do I just take a blank piece of paper and start writing things down? What are some of the tips and techniques you can give us? So I think all career coaches or all career transition consultants have some model for doing this. I take my clients through a deep discovery process. It's a series of two worksheets. The first one is a know thyself worksheet. So it gets into a series of questions and prompts that ask you more about who you are as a professional, what it is that you like about what you do professionally. And I ask it in very emotionally triggering terms because I find that those bring up the memories and the feelings that you have about yourself as a professional. You know, figuring out what are the good, what are the bad on as many different variables about your career as possible, right? What do other people think about you? Go back and review any um, employee reviews that you've received over the years or any accolades that you've received. Think about the accomplishments. That comes out in the second worksheet where you start looking at all of your jobs over the years and just going through a series of questions and prompts that really dig into what are the things that you were proud of? What were the things that made the most impact? It goes on and on in that type of way in order to elicit those deeper stories and narratives that you can then draw a golden thread through in order to define what is your overall narrative. Hindsight is 2020, right? We have the benefit of being able to look back and then stitch together a relevant story that makes sense to move forward with. We're not able, always able to do that at the very beginning in terms of what we want that narrative to look like or while it's in progress, but we can certainly take a pause and go back and look at it and review it and be able to brain dump it and then pull out all the relevant elements that make sense in terms of what is the narrative that we're going to tell that is relevant and is meaningful to the work that you want to do moving forward and for the employers that you could do that work for. Ben, it's been said to me, it's important in your transition that you are not running from something, but rather you're running to something. What does that mean to you? That's actually part of an interview technique that I used and things I was always trying to vet out when I was interviewing people as a recruiter. What are they running from or what are they running towards? And what are the patterns of those two directions throughout their career and their job transitions? I think it puts it into a positive focus of what you're running towards, right? What drives you? What motivates you? What is it that you need out of future employment? But it is also, I think, good to think about what are you running from, because that's oftentimes the things that you're trying to avoid as you continue to move forward in your career, and you don't want to repeat those same negative experiences. So I think it's it's good to reflect on what you might be running from, but it's better to focus on what you're moving towards. Ben, let's shift gears here just a bit. You've reviewed tens of thousands of resumes in your career. How do you coach your clients to develop their resume so that it stands out in the stack of others? Yeah, after looking at about 175,000 resumes over the last eight years, uh, certainly have seen the good and the bad. There is a standard structure that people are looking for. So you know, trying to make your resume stand out from an aesthetic standpoint isn't necessarily going to win you any additional points unless you're in some type of creative space and that is valued. People, when they're reviewing resumes, are pattern matchers and you want to give them information in the pattern that they're expecting. Everyone's heard the the fact that recruiters in initial reviews of resumes take 10 seconds or less to determine whether they want to continue to read further into it. And so you've got to make sure that you're presenting the information, the relevant information in a structure 
that they're expecting and that they can easily find that information. And so formatting makes a big difference in that, right? Good use of white space and spacing without getting overboard on it. Content is king when it comes to resumes. So making sure that you've got plenty of relevant content that's been tuned specifically for that job that you're applying for and making sure that you've thought about what is this hiring entity going to be looking for in this resume based on what you can understand from your analysis of the job description. And then you need to make sure that that echoes it in relevant terms and within context so they understand that you can do the work within the context that they operate in. Ben, are you seeing any trends in resume layout or verbiage, maybe moving away from the chronological to something else? Is there anything else that you're seeing in the resume space that might help someone stand out? Interesting. There's lots of resume templates out there that have been created by designers. And I would recommend that people not use those. Sorry to all the designers out there that are putting out some beautiful templates. Many of them are digestible by the applicant tracking systems. Many of them present information. While it might look interesting in an infographic, it doesn't communicate clearly. Again, content is king. And so I don't think that there are formats or structures that are going to win you anything other than providing information in the format that they want, right? We have to have a strong opening statement that defines who you are uh, in summary, uh, not the old career objective, but a, a professional summary that's relevant to the core capabilities that you bring to the role. Some keywords in a competency list or a skills list, depending upon the type of industry or role that you're in, to make sure that those are highlighted. Um, you've got to make sure that you've got some accomplishments or leadership accomplishments or career highlights if those are relevant to the type of role that you're going for or some definers of the major competencies that are required for the type of role that you're applying for. And then you've got to have a nice chronological resume that has bullet points that don't look like bullets on a job description that are high level and don't really communicate a whole lot. And they look like they could be on anybody's resume. I believe that resume bullets need to have a little bit of life to them, a little bit of context without you know, becoming paragraphs, but they need to tell what you did, how you did it and why it mattered. I think the one test to figure out whether you've got a good resume bullet is when you read the bullet, can you answer the question, so what, or to what end, right? Have you answered those two questions with regards to what you've written there in that bullet? Ben, if I'm an older candidate, how far back do I need to go with my experience on my resume? I believe that everything that is relevant should be on your resume. I'm not a stickler for the number of years that you should go back. I don't believe that you should only go back 10 or 15 years. I'm a proponent of putting all your cards on the table and being transparent and not starting off your job search or your professional relationship with a company with a bait and switch, right? If you're over 55 years old, you've got a head of gray hair and you look like a 35 year old on your resume and you show up for an interview, someone's going to feel like they've been pulled a fast one on, right? That interviewer is going to feel like you weren't being truthful with them in the end. So some people feel more comfortable hiding their dates of their graduation from college. Some people like to not put dates on roles. Eye tracking studies of resumes show that people spend a lot of time looking at those dates. They're looking to see how long your tenures are. They're looking to see you know, how much time was in between different roles. They're looking to see how long you've been in the market, how much experience you have. And so I'm all about being fully transparent when it comes to length of career. I believe there's value in the experiences that you have over a longer career. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't truncate you know, early career experience, especially if it's not relevant. You, know, you can do some simple summarizing of that without having full blown out experience sections like you would for your more recent relevant experience, but especially if it's relevant. Now, if you've had a, a lot of different jobs and some of them haven't been relevant and you leave those out, 
well, you risk having big gaps in your resume, and then that's something you have to explain as well. And so I think it's easier to explain jobs and roles that weren't relevant as opposed to explaining large career gaps because you've left out roles from your career. Ben, what about cover letters? Should you use them? And if you suggest that, yes, you should, how do you make that different than what your resume is? Cover letters get a bad rap, Bob, because most cover letters are bad. And a lot of people say they don't read them. And the reason is, is because most of the time they're just a repeat of what's in your resume taken from bullet form and put in paragraph form. And that's not useful for anybody. I believe that a cover letter can be very useful in providing more context and commentary about who you are as a professional opportunity to provide information that's not necessarily suitable to the standard structure of a resume. And I believe that you can really map your alignment to the company, its culture, its values, its mission. You can map your capabilities and experience to the team, the hiring manager, and how you can make them all be successful. I believe you can map your experiences and skills that are listed on your resume, especially the core competencies that are going to be required for the role, and give very clear examples of those and highlight a few of those as well. And then have a strong opening and a strong close in order to get their attention as to why they should read that cover letter and then have some type of call to action at the end where you ask for the interview, right? You got to show that you want it. But I believe that that type of cover letter is unique. It's different than what most people are expecting or seeing. Perhaps it doesn't get read, but if it does get read, it will certainly provide a level of information that other people are not providing and will perhaps help tip the scales in your favor. Ben, I keep hearing about that you should not just send your resume into job boards or direct to a company. You should try to find a way to go in the side door or the back door. How does this strategy work and how do I implement it? It's a great question, Bob. I actually use what I call the three doors job search, right? The front door is the online applications. Everybody's very familiar with that approach. The side door is when you work with recruiters and get some VIP access and some advocacy. And then you've got the back door. That's the relationship-based job search. And the statistics show that 60 to 90%, depending upon how it's calculated, of people get their jobs via some personal connection or network especially if you're not a perfect fit for the role on paper, meaning your resume probably isn't going to be the one that stands out based on what your prior experiences are. Uh, Perhaps you haven't been in that role or or done that. A relationship-based approach is going to be absolutely critical. There's two things a hiring manager is looking for in a candidate. They're looking for a functional or technical fit, and they're looking for the person, cultural, or the personality fit, right? You can't train somebody to be a different person, but you can train somebody on skills and functional requirements, right? And so if somebody wants to hire you because they want to work with you for eight to 10 hours every day for the foreseeable future, sometimes they can be a little bit more lenient in terms of how much you align with what they're looking for in terms of the hard capabilities and the experiences. Transferable experiences will become a much greater benefit to you when you go through a relationship-based approach. So I believe that uh, people should spend at least 60% of their time on strategically networking and building relationships with people inside of the organizations that they are targeting. That provides a few benefits. One is that you're going to be a known entity, right? In hiring, they're always trying to reduce risk and people that are unknown are higher risk. And so if you can make yourself known, if you can make yourself relatable, and if you can be on their radar prior to just being a name on a sheet of paper called a resume, you will ultimately have better status because now they're hiring a person and they're not hiring some anonymous candidate that just happens to come in through some application. So I believe people should spend 60% of their time building their network and building connections. 
that would help with the immediate job search, but also help future-proof your career to make sure that you have an existing network to be able to leverage future in the future if you should need to. And then split the remaining 40% of the time on online applications and then identifying relevant recruiters that can help you via their clients. Everyone's strategy is going to be a little bit different depending upon their unique variables. And so there's not a one-size-fits-all on this, but all three of those points of entry, ways to access a job need to be run in parallel during a job search. It's not a either-or proposition. And you talked about that side door and working with recruiters. And I know that you've done executive search for many, many years. Why don't you explain to us who really does the executive search firm work for and how should I, as a candidate, use them in my job search? Regardless if it's a recruiting firm or agency or an executive search firm or agency, they work for the company that is their client. They have a contractual relationship with them that defines the terms and the way that they're going to work together. And they have the opportunity to go find candidates, sometimes on an exclusive basis, sometimes on a competitive basis, meaning that there are other recruiting firms also working on that role. They're also competing against the internal HR team and their postings. They're competing against the hiring team and their networks. And it's a race to find the talent in the market. And so all those recruiters are working on behalf of the client to go find the talent that they are not able to capture through their own advertising, marketing, and posting. And so the trick is finding the recruiters that are working with the companies that you're interested in. Recruiting firms don't generally publicize their clients, and they're usually working with many different clients at any given time. And so there's a lot of searching and outreach that you need to do. It's great to be able to build relationship with a number of different recruiting firms that are either local, but recruiting firms also work nationally as well. And so you never know where you know some small niche recruiting firm that happens to have a relationship with an executive in the company might be working on it and they might be from the other side of the country. And there's no way you're going to find them on doing a local search. One trick that you can find recruiters sometimes is if you have find a job with a company and you want to find out if there's a recruiter working on it, is copy some unique language out of that job description, drop it into Google, see if it shows up somewhere else without the company's name on it and posted by a recruiting firm. And then you can reach out to those recruiters or apply to their posting to find out if they feel that you're a strong enough candidate for them to represent you with their client. If they're not, you can always go through the front door and apply directly with the company, but sometimes you can get some pretty strong advocacy where a recruiter can overcome objections and sell your strengths through every single step of the process, given that they are actively engaged in that hiring process with that hiring team. Ben, sometimes people have never really worked with an executive recruiter and really don't have a roadmap of what that experience is going to be like. What have you found that people like, and then the flip side of that, don't like about working with executive recruiters? There's a lot of different types of recruiters out there. And so you're referring to executive recruiters, and they generally operate at a higher level of professionalism than many others. A lot of recruiting firms get a bad rap because there's a lot of bad behaviors out there in terms of spamming candidates, non-relevant job descriptions, not treating them good when they're having conversations with them. But if we're talking about professional recruiters, if we're talking about executive recruiters, they generally have a, a different tone in professional practice. And so Oftentimes, recruiters are going to find you. That's their job, right? They recruit. They actually go out and find the talent. They're going to find passive candidates, people that aren't looking for jobs. And so oftentimes, the recruiter is going to find you. Uh, but if you're active in a job search, reaching out to the firms that you know are established and you know 
that you might have a connection with or that are in your local area or that focus on your specific industry. There's a lot of niche recruiting firms out there. And so finding them um, is always going to be good to get your resume in their database to try to build some type of connection with one of the recruiters there. Recruiters get assigned jobs and you don't necessarily know know, who's going to be working on what. So just because you have a relationship with one recruiter in a firm doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have access to all the roles that are going to be available through that firm. So not as easy to find recruiters to work with, but there's plenty of them out there, right? So it's easy to find them, but finding the right ones working on the right roles for the companies that you're targeting is a whole nother story. So you got to kiss a lot of frogs, right? You've got to reach out to them, try to build some relationships, have a conversation. And it's much easier to get to the point with a recruiter because of the fact that they're in the business of finding talent. And if your talent showing up on their doorstep and you're qualified for the types of roles that their clients have, that's a gift. So don't be afraid to reach out to recruiters and get on their radar and simply ask them, how was the best way to work with you? What's the best way to follow up with you? They'll tell you. Any thoughts or techniques that you've passed on to your clients on how to make that interview as painless as possible and to be successful for the candidate. Keep in mind that the interview starts with your very first contact with an organization, meaning if a recruiter reaches out to you, they're evaluating you as if they're the hiring manager from the moment they have their first email communication with you, their first phone call with you, their first text exchange with you, their first LinkedIn message exchange with you. So be sure that you're putting your best professional self forward through every single step of the process. It will make a difference in terms of whether you continue to move forward. That being said, in order to prepare for an interview, you have to do your research. You can't just show up unprepared. People show up for interviews woefully unprepared all the time. They try to wing it and it's not effective. You've got to do your research on the company. You've got to know why you want to work there. You've got to understand what they do. You have to understand who their customers are. At certain levels, you need to do research on their financials. You need to understand whether they've been through mergers or acquisitions within the last few years. You need to understand what that means for the structure of a business and the behaviors that are happening in the business post-merger or acquisition or or layoff, right? So doing your research, looking at current events, doing some Google news searches, looking at their blog, looking at their news page on their website, looking at everything that they publish on their career page on their website. You got to do your homework to understand what who this organization is as an entity. And you have to understand who some of the people are that you're going to be interviewing with, right? If you don't have their names initially, hopefully you do. You got to do the research on them on LinkedIn to have an idea of who your audience is when you go in to speak to them. You have to research that job description and be able to speak to every single point on it. You've got to make sure that you are professionally prepared in terms of your demeanor, in terms of your presence, whether it's going to be a video interview or whether it's an in-person interview. You need to make sure that you're, based on my experience interviewing thousands of people, it does need to be said, your grooming needs to be impeccable. Your dress and clothing needs to be impeccable. This doesn't mean that you got to be in a three-piece suit, but it means that you need to be dressed appropriately and you need to be clean and well-kept. And you need to think about this is the one and only chance I have to get in this job. Otherwise, there's no reason for you to show up. I've done a video interview with a person laying in their bed with their dog on their lap. Needless to say, that person did not move forward. If that was their level of professionalism they are willing to put forward, that was not enough. And what if you're asked about your age, your marital status, your religion, (laughs) you know, those things that we all know that recruiters should not ask. But if you are asked that, what should you do? I've got two answers for that. Well, one is we hope that people aren't asking those questions in this day and age, but they do sometimes happen or they get asked in kind of from a sideways angle. You have two responses that you can provide. One is 
thank you very much. Interview's over. Obviously, you're not ethical. I don't want to work for a company. That's a hard line to take. Some people will take that. But there is a softer approach for a second type of response is to simply say, I'm not sure how that's relevant to the role. I'm happy to answer any questions that are relevant to my ability to competently serve in this role. I don't think you should give any air to those types of questions in today's day and age. My personal opinion, there's probably some other softer ways to go about it. But I also believe that if a company is doing things that make you uncomfortable during the interview process, they're probably going to do things that make you uncomfortable during the employment period. And so if that's the way they make you feel during the interview, probably don't want to continue on with the interview or seek employment there anyway. Ben, we're going to go into our lightning round where I ask about an area and you have 10 or 15 seconds to respond to that area. First one is uh, elevator speech. Make it concise and make it interesting to where someone has questions that they want to ask and follow up. Body language. Smile. Everyone loves a smile. It warms things up. If you can configure your screen in a way that allows you to keep your eye focus on the camera, that's very important because the last thing they want to do is see the side of your face or up your nose the entire interview. Make sure that they can see your hands from time to time. If you're sitting across the table from somebody and their hands are under the table all the time, that makes you a little curious. So don't be afraid to let your hands come up into the camera from time to time um, in terms of talking with your hands, but you know, you don't have to frame your face um, as you're talking with your hands on an ongoing basis during the conversation. Be sure that you're sitting with your rear all the way to the back of your chair to where it forces you to sit straight up with your spine aligned. It opens up your diaphragm. It improves the quality of your voice. It will make you more comfortable. It'll make you look like you're not slouching. It's a simple trick that you can do that will enhance a number of different variables with regards to the way you're perceived physically. Your telephone voicemail message. Hello, this is Ben. Thank you for calling. Please leave a message and I will return your call as soon as possible. Keep it short. Keep it sweet. Keep it professional. Allow them to get to it and leave you the message. Make sure they got the right person. The questions that the candidate might ask the hiring manager. Use Google. There's a ton of them out there. But today's day and age, you want to find out how they handled the COVID pandemic. You want to figure out how they handle any large changes within their organization. Always have more questions than you think you're going to need because many of those questions will get answered during the course of the interview. And make sure that they get at a true understanding of the company, the role, and the work. And expectations for what that work is going to be. Ben, do you have any books or other resources that you'd recommend to someone going through their own personal transition? There are so many resources out there, and there are so many of them that are great, and there are many of them that are outdated and not so great. I think there's a lot of great folks out there on on LinkedIn to follow that publish unbelievably great content on a regular basis. They're competition to me in terms of it, but I love to plug them. Byron Clark. Madeline Mann, Caffeinated Kyle, and Austin Belkak. They provide great content and are very prolific on LinkedIn. Solid people to follow. Ben, if our listeners only remember three things as they go through their own personal transition, what are those three things that you want them to take away? If you're feeling discouraged during your job search, realize that the negative things in the process are often more about them and aren't a reflection of you and your value. Make sure that you truly know your value and be confident in that value and communicate it confidently and be professional throughout. Everything you do during your job search and interview processes are 
going to be a reflection of who you actually are in the workplace. So show up as your best professional self at every step of the way. Ben, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for your wisdom and experience. And thank you for caring enough about people who are in transition to share that. Absolutely. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. I hope that your listeners are able to take away some things to put into practice. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We're working in unprecedented times as the world responds to the recent COVID-19 crisis. The fact is that even those who are not in transition understand it could be right around the corner next month or a year from now. The purpose of these episodes are to give listeners support and the critical tools to adjust with the winds, wherever they come. I'll continue to introduce you to guests who have successfully, perhaps gracefully, or without too many battle scars, survived their own obstacle courses, and can share useful information on how to steady your ship or your world in this uncertainty. If today's message was helpful to you, please share it on social media. If you have any questions or podcast ideas for future conversations, reach out to me on LinkedIn. I appreciate your time, your investing in sharing these important conversations with me, my guests, and others who are going through life transition. Transitions between jobs, life stages, new entrepreneurial ventures, or whatever life brings. Change is constant. The more prepared you are for it, the better and easier the change will occur. Thank you again. This is your host, Bob Gerst. See you at our next episode of People in Transition.